0: Hello and welcome to uh, the second ever episode of Pondering Politics after a lovely successful first episode that wasn't really a proper episode, it was just more of get to know us. We're back with, I suppose, our second episode, but our first proper one, which is uh, going to be entitled This Month in Politics. And this will be our show that we put out at the beginning of every month that is about last month's politics. So this month, uh, this, this episode will obviously be talking about what has happened in January 2022 um, and if you're lucky enough you'll be listening to this uh, right at the beginning of February so it'll keep your mind fresh going into the shortest month of the year. Um, I want to start off by uh, thanking everyone for their positive reception of the last episode. It's um, At the end you'll be able to find out ways you can contact us, send us my hate mail if you want. So. Um, yeah, so we're so in this episode we're going to sort of touch on sort of three sort of major issues, and um, these are obviously going to be the big one in UK politics at the moment, Partygate, so it has been dubbed. Uh, we're also going to look at uh, the Russian Ukraine situation in terms of foreign politics, and Aaron, Aaron, Aaron wanted to also touch on uh, the uh, Biden's first year in. Office, which was a few days ago. So, Party Gate. So, Boris Johnson and the number 10 staff and civil servants have been hosting parties, get togethers over, I think it's first lockdown. This has come out when restrictions were tight, when you couldn't do anything, when police were fining people for sitting on park benches, is usually the big one everyone says. So uh Zoe, you want to you want to come in on this, do you?
1: Yeah, I'll come in. I you know, we all when this all started coming out with Pippa Carrera and Paul Brand at the Mirror and ITV, I mean it doesn't need to be said that this is crazy that they were, you know, breaking the rules so blatantly. I think the biggest one that's come out was probably the party before Prince Philip's funeral and how like the just complete disregard for this like clear suffering the Queen was going through compared to I'm pretty sure she was offered them to like end the restrictions earlier so she could have more people at the funeral. And she said no, because she wanted to be like the picture of she wanted to set an example. And I just think it's a complete disgrace. But as a left winger, of course I would say that, but what I think has been very interesting from a kind of left wing perspective is how obviously Labour are ahead in the polls at the moment by, it has been 10 points, but I think it's now close to five. I think Aaron will correct me on that if I'm wrong, but how, interesting it's been seeing us go ahead in the polls when a new party comes out but then as soon as there's like a lull in it the poll starts to narrow again and how not to be blunt but Keir Starmer it really isn't making any kind of headway in keeping that lead and making it about more about Labour being a force for good and a vision for the country and not just about people being against the Tories and I think even now, we're recording this on the 30th of January, in waiting for the Sue Gray report, which I imagine will probably be out by the time we release this, the polls are starting to narrow again, and the Tories are starting to gain. I think there was a poll out last night where the Tories gained three points. I, I just think it's the fact that polls are narrowing so quickly and people are starting to get used to the, the parties. It's, it's quite depressing from a left-wing perspective, because I want a Labour government, and people aren't supporting Labour for Labour, they're supporting Labour because they're not the Tories.
2: I think what's interesting, though, with the uh, the polling data, though, and I'm, I'm sure that Aaron can go into this in more detail, I know that he's got a lot more of the numbers. I think what's interesting with uh, what Zoe was saying with the idea that actually the polling doesn't reflect necessarily the damage that Boris Johnson has caused to his own brand. Um, but actually what we're seeing is obviously... Uh, part of the reason for such a large polling lead for Labour was the fact that a lot of Conservatives were switching to being don't-knows, and you had some switching to Labour. What the polling now seems to suggest is that there's a lot of the don't-knows going back to the Conservatives, but equally there's still a very large proportion that are switching back to Labour, and so it's interesting that that seems to be where the narrowing is coming in from. It's not necessarily that a lot of Labour people are going to the Tories, it's just that you're starting to see a solidification again of some of that vote share. But even then, it's still been damaged.
3: Well, well, I mean, that's that's not strictly true from the poll that came out yesterday, but we're down two points and Conservatives are up three, which shows that there was generally a significant swap between the two as most of the smaller parties didn't really change. But what what's really going on is that, of course, Labour didn't gain from anything beneficial themselves. No one's looking at them as the potential for this grand sweeping new wave of of ideological purism. In, instead, it's mainly more just looking at the Conservatives as, you know, they screwed up and, and so we're going to look at them on the other side. But the interesting thing is in the polling data, especially from yesterday with Opinion, is that the Conservatives gained a net 5% neighbour, halving the lead, but yet still 66% of people in that same poll believe Boris Johnson should resign. Now, what can we learn from this is the most important thing, is that perhaps... The reason why people aren't, are not going back to Conservatives isn't because they're in favour of George Johnson, but because they're ideologically more inclined to a, not the Conservative position, but the Conservative narrative surrounding other important issues. Now, of course, this is taken with a complete grain of salt. As other pollings indicated this is not the case with various different uh, issues leading more towards Labour, such as immigration. But there has to be a plausible reason of why people are going back from the Conservatives, if it is even from Labour, which recent polling suggests that it entirely is. No,
2: now, no, no, no it doesn't. The polling, yes. the polling shows is that um, at the peak of the party gate, you had only two thirds of Conservative voters, something approximately that, saying that they would confidently vote Conservative again. And you had a very significant proportion saying that they weren't sure if they would vote again. And it doesn't seem to be that there's this massive shift from Labour to Conservatives. If anything, what the polling lead shows, even when it's been cut down from a 10-point lead to a 5-point lead, that still suggests that Labour are retaining a base that's much more significant than where they were left off with in 2019. And even since then, when Keir Starmer had a bounce in mid 2020 you know he lost a lot of that support but now what you're seeing since party gate is actually a lot of the solidification of the labor base and actually the conservative polling leads do not suggest a large swing quite the contrary what they suggest is merely that the conservative vote seems to be um coalescing again but it's not some massive swing and actually that should be very worrying to the conservatives if labor can retain that which is what the data seems to suggest.
3: I just I think me and you have looked at completely different data sets because, yes, entirely when the original party gate happened, there was a swarry of, of the Conservative voters saying that they were going to don't know and some of them did go to Conservative. But, you know, we're looking at, you know, Redfield, Wilton, Opinion and, and various others such as Cantar Public, which uh, changes with December is the exact same at 38 to 34%. Uh, Ipsos Mori is the only one in the recent time that's actually put the Labour gaining uh, on the Conservatives, which is only as a result of their um, their field being from the 19th to 25th. But other than that, Labour are going down. You know, so opinion. Very, uh, for an example, had yesterday had uh, Labour at minus two and the Conservatives at minus three. that's not a near direct correlation, I, I don't really know what is, because the only other area that went down within the poll was the Green Party at minus one, which shows a three on three swap. So. I'm not particularly sure what you're looking at here, because I, I agree with you that there are various people within the Conservatives who went to don't know and are going back to the Conservatives. But to say that, you know, there's a solidation within the Labour vote is is is, is not showing in the recent. Well, I think it's-
2: I think some of the blips are kind of, you know, you'd expect to see blips. But, you know, what we have seen quite strongly is actually a shift. Because consistently, Labour are polling much higher than previously. And they have solidified that sort of increase. So although there are, as you say, you know, some polls where it's minus one, minus two, which is actually what you'd expect, you know, because statistically, you're never going to have absolute consistency either. Um, and obviously, there are trends to reflect. But I think it is interesting that Boris Johnson seems to have permanently damaged his brand, because we have seen consistent Labour leads, well- consistent <laughs> increase in the support for Labour. And as you say, there have been a few blips with the polling, But actually, it's nothing as significant as the situation we were left off with in the 2019 election in terms of swings. So I think I think for me, the conclusion that seems obvious is that it's going to be a very, um, very much an uphill battle for the Conservatives in trying to eat away at that base that's been built up since Partigate.
0: Peter has touched on a point there. I want to move on. So we're not spending the whole time talking about you two arguing about <laughs> pollings and whether Labour's
2: solid. Uh, you know,
3: it's,
0: it's
2: just it's,
3: what, what is right is you have two polls in the last few days that come out with plus five swings away from Labour to the Conservatives, and he's saying that there's a solidification in the vote. It just, it just it's, doesn't make any sense. We won't.
0: It's fair to say we can't be certain until the
3: council elections,
0: or until we're six months down the line, when party gate is sort of been nestled and done away with so i wanted to touch on a point there that peter has has brought up the the boris johnson brand the bumbling idiot the buffoon the the blue passport man has 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 permanently damaged sort of this this reputation he had as sort of being this charismatic sort of the bloke you'd want to go to the pub with and I, i i wanted to talk about this and how damaging do you think it has been do you think that boris needs to change his image to survive if he wants i was thinking the other day in a sort of personal way that people are now looking at boris and looking at starmer and when boris is like he's a lawyer not a leader people people prefer someone who's a bit more polished perhaps boris needs to sort of polish up his image and start looking a bit more stately. um i'm just wondering what what people are be inclined to say about sort of the boris brand and where where does it go from here? And uh, I, I'd be excited to hear from Zoe. Uh,
1: I would say it's a bit late for that. Like, you know, everyone's seen the fo- everyone's seen the party gate images. Everyone knows what this man's like. So, trying to polish up the image, I think it's like twenty to maybe more than twenty years too late for that. But I did see some polling, and Aaron, in his infinite wisdom, will probably you know add all the fanciness onto this. But I saw some polling done about. Uh, new leaders and how they would like perform I mean you can probably tell by the accent I'm a raging northerner so I compared about I cared about the red wall so I saw that and it said that Boris up north all right but not the best Rishi they were very happy with but Liz Truss didn't like it all and as she's kind of tipped to stand for the leadership, I know we've seen Tom Tugendat, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, say when Boris goes, he's going to stand. But I'm pretty sure everyone's aware that Liz Truss is trying to level best, Rishi, you know, another one tipped to go for it. It's definitely going to be interesting to see, because when Boris eventually goes, which... You know, there's a million variables about when that's going to happen. So I'm not even going to bother trying to get into that. But when he eventually goes, who is going to be replaced with in that leadership contest? I think it's definitely going to be interesting because how do you replace a bumbling idiot that's got himself into a million messes? Who do you replace that person with? It's like it feels like another Trump. Obviously, Boris isn't Trump, but it's like, where do you go from this just person who's not like everybody else? One of one of my one of my
0: favourite comments I saw about Liz Truss is she's basically um, the Conservatives' version of Ed Miliband. She's very popular with the membership, but she's not very popular um, outside of the membership. So uh,
1: I like that one. I haven't heard that before. I like that.
0: So I, I think that'll be quite interesting. So um, so yeah, Boris, his brand is broken, um, and he hasn't gone yet, which I think is a shock to a lot of people. Um, and the question is if. I don't think the question is if he goes now, it's when he goes and why. Um, I don't know if any of you are inclined to agree with me. I, 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 I don't fathom a world where he will be leading the Conservative Party into the next election. I know he wants to, um, because um, there was that story, was it from The Telegraph, where he said he, he, that he didn't want to let the last Etonian Prime Minister beat him, because obviously Cameron was in office, what, six and a half years I want to say he was prime minister and this sort of shows how for Boris, this is all sort of a competition and a back to their days of childhood rivalry in the, is it the Bullington boys or or what other club they were in? So, um, I think it's very interesting to, to see this. And I mean, the the question is why, why did more MPs speak out against Boris? We saw a lot of like, uh, Disgruntleness. We've seen a lot of vocal people. Obviously, is it Chris Wakefield or Whitefield? Chris Wakefield.
1: Chris Wakefield in Berry South.
0: Yeah, Berry South. big up Berry Market, can I say? Big up Berry Market. Big up cat saw me on
1: Berry Market. Sorry, carry Love
0: on. love Berry Market. But um he obviously defected to Labour, which I think is is huge. Um, especially, especially in this parliament. Um, so I know. Um, so, I, I just want to see what other points people want to make, and maybe, maybe we can hear off Aaron.
3: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to kind of unpack that all. So, this may take some time, but I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can. This is the first step in, in regard to the brand of Boris, and to answer this kind of question, we have to go back through history, as Zoe will know I do quite often. Because the great leaders of this nation back in the day were usually the great orators and the people who could convey their points and do these great elaborate speeches for hours upon hours. You know, you, you hear about uh, William Pitt's first ever, um, the younger ever speech being three hours in the Commons. And, and you know, that was an old tradition. Nowadays, you have to pack your views into short, brief amounts of time. You don't get as much time as you used to be able to in debates didn't last years. You know, we we talk about Brexit as if that lasted forever. Back in the 1800s, the Catholic emancipation lasted 30 years. So, you know, you have to put everything within context. But the reality is that Boris is very good at unpacking things into a short period of time. And it's a very good evader, which is the thing that is most important because, we, you know... A lot of the criticism Boris got in the last in this time um, doesn't tell the truth is a bit of a bumbling idiot it was true two years ago uh, was true ten years ago and in in terms of the image of him and what people would claim about him and it seemed to have not really had much an effect now obviously sixty six percent of people according to polls wants him to resign. But if the Conservatives are able to... If he's able to survive this period, I don't really see why he... And the Conservatives grow, as they have done every time there's been a lull in the parties. I generally think, for the most part, people are kind of done with the parties uh, because it's been over so much of a duration of time. It's kind of... People just kind of move on from it just due to the nature of the cycle. But I, I... I can kind of see a world in which he kind of doesn't resign and doesn't get ousted. The reason why the Wakeford defection kind of hindered the Conservatives' uh, rebels is because it kind of ruined the momentum they were growing within the party and people kind of like constraining it with traitorism and the values of not-conservatism, which is somewhat damaging. You know, we heard Lee Anderson, I think, talk about how it was over, they called him Chris Wokeford, which, you know, I think says everybody all of how it's been constructed.
2: I think we have to put ourselves in the uh, minds of Conservative MPs at the moment. What would the purpose be of getting rid of Boris Johnson? What would the purpose be of installing a new leader? And obviously, the main issue is obviously the Conservative Party win elections and... Boris Johnson is unpopular, so therefore they might not win an election. But You see, the thing is, who would actually want to be the leader of the party at this moment? You have to remember that we've got huge rises in cost of living, huge tax rises, you know, national insurance hike, um, student loan payment freeze, which in practice means a rise in um, in how much you're paying back. Um, you've also got issues like obviously inflation is at record levels uh, for like last However many years, you know, the the aim was obviously to bring it down to 2.5% and it's currently over 5%. We're having supply chain issues. We're seeing all sorts of um, new problems, not just to do with the consequence of COVID, but just in general, a global economy that is really struggling. And in some ways, it's almost convenient that you've got a prime minister that's deeply unpopular and also presiding over uh, circumstances that are actually outside of his control. Uh, and things are going wrong for him, but these are things that actually they can saddle on his record and potentially a future leader doesn't have to deal with. Uh, You know, the biggest fear for a potential future Conservative leader is getting blamed for crises that they didn't really want to inherit. You know, you look at the way that Gordon Brown had the misfortune of inheriting the financial crisis that no one could have seen coming. Well, at this point, we know that there's a bunch of crises being... uh, (laughs) you know, on the horizon, we know that people are about to have a massive hit on their energy bills. We know that there's going to be all these issues facing everyday people, especially voters who trusted the Conservatives to bring down costs and keep the the economy stable or whatever. Um, You know, those were all kind of uh, slogans and the, the lines that were used. And so actually, you have to think, is it actually in their interests to get rid of Boris Johnson right now when they can pin all the blame for everything, you know, party gate, but also cost of living and everything that's going wrong. You know, they can pin it all on him. And when he's gone, he brings the blame with him. So in some ways, I think it's actually in the Conservatives Party uh, interests not to get rid of him right now. Uh, And in some ways, to an extent, it's in Labour's interests to keep him on because he personally is doing so much damage to the Conservative brand. The longer they can stretch out the crises that Boris Johnson is personally associated with, Perhaps that's actually a better move for Labour.
0: So, so that is that is the question, I suppose. Who replaces Boris Johnson? So, we obviously, we've mentioned the uh, MP of the Foreign Affairs Committee. I'm sorry, I don't know his name.
1: Tom Tugendhat, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Yes, he said I, when Boris goes, he's going to try.
0: Liz Liz Truss. His um, there was a story the other day about. Um, I think there was a website domain claimed. Um,
1: yeah. Trusted in, in, Liz we, in Liz We Trust.
0: Yeah, in Liz We Trust. That
1: website's been bought.
0: Um, Sunak is, I don't think there's any public like, domain stuff that he wants to run, but it's clear as day he has been very adamant to distance himself from Boris. Um, as far as uh, speculation is, the pictures of the garden party were taken from one of Sunak's sort of people's offices. We've got
1: um Steve... I know some people want Johnny Mercer.
0: I have sorry, I am I am completely uneducated Johnny
1: constant. Mercer is the MP for Plymouth Morview, is a is a veteran and has been really he was the veteran's minister, he's really big on that, he's like done a lot of stuff about Northern Ireland, he's definitely he appeals he, he, to he, one he, wing of the Conservative Party. He also
3: but... resigned from this government, which oh, is a yeah, important he... thing.
1: Yeah. Well, he said he told the whips he was going to resign and then they sacked him. So he didn't have a chance to resign. Uh, but he's, yeah, he's, you know, he appeals to what? And then you've got Mark Harper. I know I've got some friends, Mark Harper, who definitely the kind of ERG, Steve Baker, no lockdown, no vaccine passport people. You've got Mark Harper who definitely,
0: That was, like. that was the big one I was going to mention just at the end there, Steve Baker as well, who seems like he could be the underdog. So, anyways, and obviously, Michael Steve Gove. Baker's probably, can
3: lose his seat.
0: Michael Gove will probably throw his hat in the ring as he always does. Um, do you think any of them will make a, a move this year for the leadership? Do you think there will be a leadership
1: I hope contest?
0: So. I suppose the ultimate question I am asking here is: Will the Sue Gray report be impactful? And if so, what effects will it have? So.
3: I think it will be impactful in... in. I mean, we know that it's not, It's going to be in a redacted format. It's not going to be the full thing. We're not going to be... I, don't, I doubt we'll see the full version for a few years whilst the Metropolitan Police conducts its investigations into the evidence presented within it. But I think that I don't really... The the, the, the Sue Gray report is was effectively Boris Johnson buying time. And I think that because time's kind of gone and more people are kind of seemingly not as chilled out well more chilled out as they were it's kind of like the the strategy of the people releasing it was to release it bit by bit to keep to keep the outrage for longer but it doesn't seem to have worked in this way that they thought it would have because every a week after one comes out people kind of just like not care as much, and polling shows that the Conservatives appear to be gaining during that week. I think that the Conservatives probably should get rid of Boris and bring in a leader. My preference, would on an analytical standpoint, would be to go for a backbencher, because um, you know the question is: is we know we know that these the journalists are holding stuff back. Could you then you know bring in a frontbencher and then find out they were involved in these Downing Street parties? As well as invited guests, you know, so on and so forth. So I think that if you want to get rid of this scandal, that's the best way. But I also think that the big advantage that currently the conservative have is that they could probably claw back the the polls if they if they were going to go on a charge. Because I don't think that any of the polls right now pro-labour are all really hammered. Um I I I think that. You know, there's, there's three years minimum till the next general election. And I think that if they get a new leader or maybe if they don't, they've, that's plenty enough time for them to remit a new image. Because we've seen many times that people have had poor personal ratings. Our parties have had poor polling. And then when it comes down to crunch time, they pull out a lead and win.
1: I just wanted to say that I'm pretty sure Labour are expecting a general election next year.
0: What makes you
1: say so, that? What <laughs> makes me think that? I'm in Labour yeah. and I talk to people. I'm pretty sure we're preparing for a May election. May,
0: do, do, next May. So what what have people been saying then, Zoe?
1: I feel, I don't know. I can and can't say here, but like, we're, we're, we've, we've all been expecting for a while an election in 2023. <laughs> and yeah, Peter here say lots of MPs are expecting 2023. I don't know. It's just kind of, It's just the years we kind of expect. And holding them in May would mean, you know, people are having elections anyway. I'm from Bolton. (laughs) We're having all outs from the council. Like, there's a lot going on in first Thursday in May every year, local elections. So why not have a general as well?
0: So that would would truthfully depend on, that would depend on the Conservative government obviously wanting an early election, I suppose. And do you think, especially if polling continues how it was, if they got a new lead by then, do you think they would be calling an election then?
2: I think it's worth noting that Oliver Dowden, who's chair of the Conservative Party, did say that they could be preparing for a 2023 election, but it depends whether it's in their interests to hold it at the start of the year or do what they did last time, which was a Christmas election, which actually um, is actually quite bad circumstances for Labour. You've got university students who um, are at home, but might not be as engaged with voting as usual Uh, you have obviously the cold weather and the darkness which is obviously as anyone who's canvassed knows is an absolute nightmare compared to uh, you know sunny and pleasant conditions in general it's you know uh, it's much more inaccessible for voting so uh, timing is everything with voting and the conservatives will be obviously watching trends and, and trying to work out when's best but equally it does bide in time saying they could do it in 2023 but they don't have to commit to that obviously
3: the reason why i said 2024 not 2023 is because if you look at historical context and we all love historical context generally speaking when a when a government is fearing that it's going to lose it goes for a five-year term because they can try to maximize we saw this callahan did it uh major did it brown did it cameron did it obviously cameron won and he's the only one out of those three so that's why yes they may be preparing for 2023 but if polling numbers continue like this that's never going to happen but most importantly is is you know when it comes to the next general election uh, december didn't mean anything let's be honest right the turnout was in line with generally what's happened over the last few years like if it, did, I mean, yes, may make sense within the context of the local elections, but generally speaking, if we're talking about turnout specifically, right, which is what was stated, I know Zoe's um, chatting. If could chat, it was so cold, my poor hands. But generally speaking, it didn't make much of a difference with the voters, which is the important thing. As much as activists would be frustrated, but generally speaking, like. Doesn't make much of a difference, really, and utterly. If the, I think that the Conservatives will try to create as much distance between this scandal as they possibly can, because they're going to try to do what most governments do when they're struggling, which is try to give everyone a bit of goodies so that people are more inclined to vote for them.
0: But that is sort of everything, sort of from polls, to sort of Boris to him going, sort of what we can expect from Sue Gray's report, and uh, we shall move on. Uh, and uh, we should talk about, we should talk about the other big story this month, which is the build-up of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. Um, current estimates, I think, are Russia are preparing for a February invasion, when the ground is frozen. Obviously, implying uh, movement. I think at last check, there are Russian has moved blood. Uh, to the border, which obviously is needed when you're going to be having injured combats and need to do blood transfusions. So it seems they are prepping for the final stages of an invasion. And although Russia are still adamant they won't invade, uh, I think most political commentators in the West at least are agreed that invasion is coming for Ukraine. Um, what are the implications of this invasion for the West, for NATO, for Russia, for Europe as a whole, really? What what
3: does this mean? I mean, it, it, it's important in terms of the geopolitical uh, nature, you know, uh, in, in terms of foreign relations. Ukraine has got close links to NATO, though not a member, which is, you know, highly important within a region which historically NATO hasn't had as much of a uh, close connection with as obviously as part of the Soviet Union. Uh, but I think it's also it's, it's important in terms of, the the how nations P- are going to react to it i mean biden said you know during his presidential campaign that he's you know going to fight against putin and you know putin wants trump and then you know the first conflict that's happened with putin he's already announced that he's not going to do anything about it which you know is very interesting um but more but more than that i, th- I think that in terms of europe as we know europe has got his history of conflict how will this, you know, in that change anything? We know we're not really sure on the position of the UK government in terms of arms, though. I I doubt they'll be inclined to go with that, and it'll be a last resort. But then equally, I can't see either side of Ukraine or Russia really standing down or coming to agreement. So this will be up in the air at the moment, and we'll have to see how it unfolds.
0: Well, I think I I I think in terms of the response from the West, we're not going to see any military action. So sadly. Or, or, positively, I should say, World War Three is not happening. Fingers crossed. Um, but I, I believe I saw some decisions today that said, uh, in terms of sort of what the UK is doing, we've sent 900 troops to Estonia. I think we're sending equipment and and stuff to the the border states. Uh, obviously, Boris has been very. I think this is sort of might be somewhere where he shines. Sort of posturing and and and. And what much being bombastic about this all. But then we also saw Starmer released his essay, he delivered uh, what I thought was a, a great speech in the House of Commons on this issue. Um, in terms of sort of, uh, and people have been saying that Starmer's sort of approach this is obviously a departure from sort of what some people described as the pro Putin. Uh, Labour government that like not Labour government, sadly, um, Labour Party that was Jeremy Corbyn's party. So I'm just wondering, um, in terms of response from Boris, Starmer, what what do people make of this? What are what are the responses? Do we think Starmer is demonstrating that he has an ability to lead on foreign policy issues here? And is Boris doing a good job in the way he's responding to this? Because he obviously he's if you watched um Prime Minister's question the other day, Um, Boris was obviously keen to be saying that in the Cabinet room, they're getting everyone together, they're the ones who are leading the meetings with Western allies and stuff. So I'm wondering if anyone would like to talk about how Boris and Keir are responding to this.
2: I think what's striking about this issue is actually how little it seems to be punching through at the moment. Like, right now, the big issue in the UK is party gate. And even though there is this potential for the escalation, in Eastern Europe, which could be catastrophic. I mean, I know that, you know, colloquially, uh, you know, well, anecdotally, there's friends of mine who are very worried about, especially the situation with parts of Romania that border Ukraine, and a lot of Eastern Europe will be looking to the situation with a lot of uh, anxiety. Um, so it's interesting because obviously, you know, NATO do have, um, you know, obviously their own, mechanisms in place which mean that in theory NATO members should be protected but obviously Ukraine isn't a NATO member and will need to uh, you know work out a plan of action uh, but right now it seems the UK is pretty distracted so it's not an issue that uh, seems to be on the agenda but no doubt there'll be a lot happening behind the scenes. Um, I mean my understanding is that the UK is sending over quite a lot of weaponry at the moment. But the real question is, will we send over the manpower? And when push comes to shove, would we enter conflict? And I'm not sure we're in a position to do so at the moment.
0: Like that, I think that comes down to the fact that, uh, obviously, Ukraine is not a NATO state at the moment. And, the, yeah. and Putin's whole rhetoric has been, as long as the Ukraine doesn't join NATO, we won't invade. But um, as you said, if, if Putin was to invade Ukraine, and by the sounds of it, it's unlikely to be a full annexation, Um, There have been talks that he has uh, a Ukrainian MP, I think, ready to sort of take over as president, prime minister, or president. I'm not sure who their leader is in Ukraine. I presume it's a president because it's a republic. Um, But if if they were to fully annex, or if they were to sort of get sort of in terms of like Belarus, but Ukraine, so these two are both aligned with Russia then, because obviously. The Belarusian president, uh, Europe's last dictator, as he dubs himself, um, has obviously been very supportive of of Ukraine, uh, of Russia, sorry. And he has said he will wipe out the Baltic states if it comes to it. But this would leave sort of, uh, this would push sort of NATO and Russia to sort of their, sort of the most on the front they've been with each other since the Cold War. Because Ukraine, as, as Peter said, it borders Romania, but it also borders uh, Slovakia, Hungary, Poland—all these are NATO states. Uh, you've got the Baltic states, which are obviously borders, uh, and there are terms of this having greater implications for countries like Sweden and Finland, who are obviously more Western-aligned, but um, Russia would not like them to join NATO, so to speak, as well. Um, but they're obviously different because Finland is a is an EU state. Um, so it's a, it's a bit different there, but this this might pressure them away from the West. So um, this could have sort of huge sort of um, geopolitical ramifications um, if this goes forward.
1: I just wanted to come in and say I don't have any hot takes about Ukraine and Russia. I probably should, but I right. think there's quite a lot to be said on the fact that people don't know this is happening and how the British media is focusing so much on Partygate when... At the moment nothing's really happening in Parthigate we're all waiting for a report to come out and how like isolated the British media's or like maybe this isn't the fault of the media but there, there's got to be a reason why Russia could be about to invade Ukraine and nobody knows and no one really has any kind of like it doesn't seem like anyone's really talking about it when it's a big deal Maybe this will be something we can cover in next month's podcast, but it seems remarkable that nothing's really going on about it. Go on, Peter.
2: I think it's worth noting that Liz Truss is on the record as saying that she won't deploy troops uh, to uh, deal with the situation. And additionally, unless I'm mistaken, Joe Biden was on the record suggesting a similar sentiment. The focus seems to be if Russia does take action, uh, the response would be economic in nature. You know, it avoids a direct conflict between big powers. But, you know, it, it is interesting that there seems to be obviously a hesitancy to actually engage in conflict. But equally, the question is, would economic sanctions be enough to uh, put off Russia? And I guess we'll find out.
0: Well, in, in terms of in terms of sort of what is planned, um, I don't know the official name for it, but there are plans in place that would basically isolate Russia from the international market, which would damage their economy hugely. Um, we saw this with Crimea to an extent, but obviously I think the the sort of the um, the the economic sanctions in terms of if they were to invade Ukraine would be a lot bigger. Uh, they'd be a lot more impactful. And uh, in terms of sort of what I think what Biden definitely wants to go for is the destruction of the Russian economy and, um, although there is obviously problems with germany in particular um obviously they 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 rely on russia for natural gas so they have been a lot less willing to cooperate um with the other western powers uh, say what you will about the history of germany or sort of uh, russia and stuff like that but um that's that's certainly very interesting um and uh, another thing i wanted to say is uh, for anyone who's Irish, in our know, uh, our listeners, I don't know if anybody is, but obviously Russia has been has announced that it's going to do some naval exercises off Ireland. Uh, Ireland, of course, doesn't have a very big navy. I think it's nine ships in total they have, uh, and and I think the the plan is for Irish fishermen to go where these ships are going to be to disrupt the naval exercises because it is a fishing ground. Um, so they're going to sort of put up a protest where the irish government can't so this is sort of huge russia is very much maneuvering at the moment flexing its muscles so to
3: speak um one of the interesting things about this is obviously you know it's highly likely that there's going to be an attempt to hit the russian economy and part of that will be involved with oil and gas now obviously russia's economy is built upon its oil and, you know, there have been talks about, you know, perhaps that we're going to change our oil supplies from Russia to to a different nation. And, they you know, highly likely it could be from America, which would be the first time that obviously we, you know, import oil from America. And being a really interesting political dynamic between the UK and US, you know, we, we always talk about the special relationship between the two. But, you know, I've heard from various different, you know, people, including former ambassadors, that the special relationship effectively means... Uh, Britain kissing America's ass so you know we we can be looking in a position where what how will this affect the relationship between the UK and US if we're more reliant on them which it will be certainly an important thing to look to go forward because polling showed in 2012 that between that the UK citizens were split between whether they wanted to go independent from Europe or America yeah, this could be interesting in terms of the positioning of political parties going forward. When, when anyone mentions
0: special relationship, I always think about um, Love Actually, when uh, Hugh Grant makes that brilliant speech about Britain having the Beatles and David Beckham's left foot and David Beckham's right foot. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes I wish we had Hugh Grant's character from that film as Prime Minister. Um but we've talked a lot about America and that moves on to sort of um sort of uh the last thing we wanted to touch on. This was one of Aaron's suggestions. So I'll let him say what he wants to say on this. But this is sort of Biden's first year in office. Um I'll be honest, American politics, American history as a historian does not interest me. I think it's overdone, I think it's boring, I think it's cliche. But we have to talk about it. America has this huge impact on the world. Um they, they, they have the ability to invade any country in the world they want to. They have the ability to economically destroy most countries in the world. So we have to talk about the impact, and we have to talk about their leader, their president, who is Joe Biden, um, who has been in office now for a year. And depending, I, I, I think the, the general consensus is that he's meh. I want to, I, I want to go with he's meh. Um. Aaron, Aaron's frantically shaking his head at me. So, I, I, I would, I would be interested to hear why he isn't
3: Meh. It's not so much I think he he's Meh in terms of his policy, but I mean, just looking at his approval rating at the moment, it's minus twelve, uh, 12, uh, three, but kind of in that region. You know, a disapproval rate of forty-one point eight, and I've seen polls show that if there was a rematch between Donald Trump and Biden, Biden would actually lose the popular vote, which almost certainly means that he would lose the the general, considering Trump was around a hundred thousand votes off winning the general last time and won after losing the popular vote to uh, Hillary. So that that is an in, in, in incredible stat, especially because you know Biden. Especially the Democrats, and, you know, members such as Joe Manchin and Sinema have kind of blocked a lot of his proposals, uh, especially in terms of the infrastructure bill and the uh, bill he, he's, he's trying to impose on, um, on the elections. But what's more interesting is he's now come up with this new thing to kind of block various different uh, things that the Republican states are trying to do in terms of voting of voter ID which obviously is a very controversial issue and I'm not going to dive into which is wrong or right but the interesting thing is his his rhetoric is almost similar to to Trump where he's saying it won't be a legitimate election which you know I think is kind of you know continuing that sort of rhetoric from Trump is going against some of the kinds of things he was uh preaching about but um you know he he he's not really hit the round running, which I think most Democrats would have wanted. It's highly likely that they're going to lose the um, House next election. And, you know, it's a 50-50 Senate at the moment. If he has uh, a term of the Republicans in both houses, you know, it didn't do very well when Obama had that with his approval ratings. It could be the end of him going into next election, which brings more questions about the Republican primary.
0: Um, I, the Senate is particularly interesting because I know a lot of Democrats have huge issues with Joe Manchin and Christina Sin- Cinema. I want to say it is, who are both very, um, old, I'd say, old guard Democrats who are very much, uh, they're not part of this progressive wing, they're not part of the ones who are trying to shake up the nation and stuff, so obviously they are because in, in in an ideal world, the Democrats would always support Joe Biden's plan, which would mean that Kamala Harris, the missing vice president, uh, who hasn't been seen very much since since sort of the start of the term, would just walk into the Senate every day and win all the votes and stuff. So um, at the moment, it, it, I've seen some Democrats argue that, in fact, this is a Republican-controlled Senate basically because of Joe Manchin, because of Christina Sinema. Um an interesting point is Kamala Harris, the vice president. So um, she has been missing in action for, I'd say she's been missing in action. She's She's gone from hugely popular as well to hugely unpopular. Um, I don't know what to make of uh, vice president Harris. Um, she was sort of lauded as this huge victory. She was the first woman vice president. She was the first uh, person of colour vice president she was the first Asian prime minister uh, vice president because she's obviously of Indian descent so where is she and what is she up to and what impact does she have do, do you think does anyone think Harris has paved the way for a, a female president where Hillary Clinton failed
1: that she is paving the way for a female president I mean, in a sense, yes, but like only because she's a woman and she's in that office. So Biden choosing her and then are getting winning—do I think it helped? Probably. Do I think it's enough? No. Well, we'll we're, we're doing a feminism podcast, or at least I sincerely—I think we are—we're doing a podcast on here about feminism. I'm sure in that we will get into the like, in my opinion, radical shift we need to get like more female representation without. Like just, just we need a radical shift. We can't just have oh well. Here's one woman. Here's another woman. Right. We've achieved gender equality. No, we need more than that. Go ahead. I'd, I'd,
0: I'd ask just, just uh, I'd ask you though. Does what happens in America in terms of, especially obviously as a woman in terms of female equality, would a female president you think have an impact on, on women in the UK? Do Do you think that is something?
1: I mean, maybe, but. As I've just said we need we need more than that like just having one token woman in a high office isn't enough like we've had two female prime ministers here does that mean we've you know reached complete gender equality no like it's not enough to just say oh well you know we've got a female president is it something yes is it everything no so is it is it nice to see as a woman in politics is it nice to see women succeeding yes but like there's got to be more to it than that I mean not to go off on one but intersectional feminism we've got to focus on like marginalized women it can't just be and I'm aware that Kamala isn't this but we can't just be focusing on straight white middle-class women it's got to be like everybody so there's way more to it than just oh well having one female president like there's got to be more to it than that Uh,
3: I'll, I'll come in on this um Kamala Harris is deeply unpopular. She was uh, uh, very badly in the primaries, so she's not popular amongst Democrats. All the polling showed that she wasn't popular in the general election, and uh, it was funny for me to see all the everyone kind of pin Harris this hope for American women and ethnic minorities because she was in the vice president's job, which means she would only become president because Joe Biden became incapacitated. Which I mean, if. if I mean, if she does get democratically elected in the next general election, which has happened, vice presidents have, after their president uh, stood down, become president. You know, Um, Harry Truman was one of them. Um, Bush senior was was another one. Well, I mean, directly after um, because I I don't know if Biden's going to be standing next time because he's a bit old. Uh, but um, yeah, Joe Biden would be a, a great example. Al Gore was very, very twenty five thousand votes away from doing it himself. Uh, so you know, is is you know, it's highly possible for, for for this to happen. But is she going to do that? No. Um, she's she, she does she, she the the only reason people are putting her on a pedestal is because she was in that position, not because of anything she's done or stood for. And that's the important thing because people aren't. In my view, and maybe this is a simple view, but people aren't necessarily elected based on what they look like. But more, important, more importantly, though, ask the African American communities right now if, if they've, their conditions greatly changed as a result of Barack Obama becoming president. So I can you guarantee you most of them wouldn't. As, as you can
0: tell, Af- Aaron is our American expert, um, more certain so than anyone else. And I'm sure when we talk about America again, should we end up in World War Three, and our last podcast before nuclear annihilation will be on sort of who's going to win the war? Uh, the answer is not us. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll see what comes of that. A positive
1: so, spin for us there, Jack. Who's going to well, win the war? Not us. I mean, you're if, not wrong, but thanks for you know really putting
0: it <laughs> That has been our first proper episode. Well, our first proper episode of this month in politics. Um. I think we've we've done quite well for such a little time. I'm, I'm glad everyone's managed to have their say here and we've we've sort of touched on sort of all, all the little issues in sort of these bigger problems. Um uh I want to say you can obviously follow us on social media, uh at Pundering Politics on Twitter, uh, where you can find our personal socials. You can email us punderingpolitics at gmail.com, where obviously if you want, send us some hate mail. We we are we are very appreciative. Um, you
1: can also say nice things as well. We appreciate the nice well, things. But if we, you want to send we hate really mail,
0: do. you know we'll still read um, it. Constructive criticism is what we like to go with um, over over hate. Um, so, in terms of what comes up next, the next episode will be our sort of general interest episode. And I I don't know if I can say this. Someone it can it either... Dad, so someone it can either comment me say no. Um, but we are going to have our first guest on. Um, which is be, uh, A member of the London Assembly, uh, Zach Polanski, who is a uh, one of the free one of the free green assembly members. Obviously, uh, that is very exciting. Uh, I won't be there for that. It will be Peter, Zoe, and Aaron interviewing him. Um, he's lovely I be, and
1: he's very interesting, so you should listen. Even if you think we're boring, you should listen to that.
0: Um, I will be just editing the episode, so you, you'll 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 feel my presence through how it's edited. Um, so that will be our next episode, and then the episode after that will obviously be February's roundup, which will be obviously sooner than this one was because of how short the month of February is. If if no one has anything else to say, um, we shall say goodbye for now, and hopefully we shall keep you listening. Uh, for the future and you will enjoy uh, and you are looking forward to the next episode of first ever interview so thank you very much this has been pondering politics with jack mayer zoe walsh aaron goldsmith and peter hartwood